For those of you who don't know me, I am your pastor emeritus. <laughs> For those of you who do know me, I'm still your pastor emeritus. And I confess that in my retirement, my search continues to discover exactly what pastor emeritus means. Although, as some have suggested, it is not Latin for slightly senile. I want to thank Kelly and Kate and the whole staff here at Rosedale Gardens for inviting me to be here on Holy Humor Sunday. I know that Kelly had sent out a notice in advance that I would be speaking today, and in honor of this being the Sunday after Easter, she said that I would come and probably lay an egg in the pulpit today. <laughs> and it is still Easter. We need to remind ourselves that Easter is a continuing season. It runs for seven weeks, from last Sunday, Easter morning, all the way through to Pentecost, which this year falls on June the 9th. And that's a good thing, because Easter is a much longer story than just one day, one week. Now, the submarine church attenders, they don't realize that. They miss it. Oh, the submarine church attenders, that's those folks that only surface on Easter and Christmas. So they do miss like 90% of the continuing story of Easter. What we do know, seriously, is that after the Easter morning resurrection, Jesus, he kept showing up in other places at other times to other people. The book of Acts tells us that this went on for weeks. And the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his first letter to the Corinthian church, said that in addition to the disciples, on various occasions, Jesus also appeared to more than 500 people. Now, our reading this morning is one of those appearances, and it comes to us at the very end of the gospel according to John. And it tells us how several of the disciples have now returned to the Sea of Galilee. They're up in northern Israel. And the Sea of Galilee was that large inland freshwater lake, sometimes called, as it is in today's reading, the Sea of Tiberias. They go back here because this is where some of them had been commercial fishermen before they had joined up with Jesus three years earlier. And so for the time being, they're sort of going home. They're sort of returning to the familiar to get their feet back on the ground again and figure out, okay, now what happens next? And it's here. Far away from the empty tomb in Jerusalem, it's here that suddenly we find Jesus appearing by the shore of the lake. And so we read together John 21, verses 1 through 14. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. 
And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boats, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and he jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread, and Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And there, there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. I am absolutely convinced that God has a sense of humor. That belief has always been a huge part of my own personal faith. And if you doubt God's humor, then all you have to do is look up here and see who the guest speaker is this morning. <laughs> and if you know me at all, you've got to see some humor in this whole situation. <clears throat> and if you can't laugh at that, then you've probably been born without that thing we call a funny bone, which ironically is also called, what, the humorous? I know, it's spelled differently, but you get the point. Anyway, I think there is ample evidence, and the evidence has been around for a long time, that God surely does have a sense of humor. That evidence goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And yes, it's true that later on they managed to eat themselves out of house and home. But before that happened, they actually had something of an ideal marriage. Think about it. Adam never had to listen to her talk about all the other men she could have married. <laughs> and Eve never had to put up with his mother. <laughs> so speaking of the creation story, the Bible also clearly tells us that you and I are created how? In the image of God. Now that's the Bible's way of saying in very poetic language that we have a soul, that we have intelligence, that we have a spirit, that we are capable of self-awareness, that we have a conscience, and that we can rationally think. 
And we believe these are some of the things that make us different from all of the other creatures on the face of the earth. That is what being made in the image of God really means. We've also been given this very special gift, this gift of having a sense of humor. And the fact that we have this gift, I think it tells us two things. First of all, it tells us that if we are indeed made in the image of God, then God too must have a sense of humor. And the second thing it tells us that is that having a sense of humor is, I think, one of the most important tools that you and I have for maintaining an emotional well-being. See, I think the gift of humor is an essential instrument for our emotional survival. Sense of humor is one of those key ingredients that helps us to maintain good psychological health. If you and I can't laugh, or at least sometimes smile, at the behavior of other people or about certain situations in life, most important of all, if we can't laugh or at least smile at ourselves, then we bring a balance to life. Humor brings a perspective to living. Humor helps to keep us on an even keel. If you sit down and Google something like a sense of humor and psychological health, you're going to find there's a whole stream out there of articles and essays and studies and research papers. And some of them are quite learned in the fields of psychiatry and medicine. But what they all bear out is the dramatic importance of how this works. How humor really does help to keep us balanced. How it helps to keep us healthy. So humor really is a gift of God. You and I, we need to learn to use it regularly. But there's something else here too. See, I really do believe that sometimes God uses humorous situations to make his will known. I really do believe that sometimes God uses humorous situations to show us that God really does exist. There is a story told by a man who says that he knows for sure there is a God. He swears that he has proof. And the proof occurred when he was a teenager, back when he was about 17 years old. And he was aboard his very first transcontinental airplane flight. Now this was the scene as he recalls it. The aircraft is hardly even airborne, and there is this man sitting right across the aisle from him who begins swearing a blue streak. And his obscenities are all directed at a female flight attendant who is trying her absolute best to be totally professional, despite this continued verbal abuse. Now, a little aside here. You have to understand that the teenager who is living this story has never had a real date yet. And like many adolescents, he is struggling mightily with personal issues like self-confidence and insecurity. And he's looking up at this flight attendant who's only a couple years older than he is. 
and he's decided that she is clearly one of the most beautiful women on the face of the planet. And now he's watching this awful scene unfold right beside him, and he doesn't know what to do. Because after all, he's just this skinny little kid, 17 years old, and he's always been really, really shy. Things quiet down for a while, and then about a half an hour into the flight, this loud mouth across the aisle decides he is actually going to light up one of the most foul-smelling cigars that you can imagine. And of course, the flight attendant rushes right to his side and explains that this has been a non-smoking policy on all the airlines everywhere for years and years and years, and he can't do this. He just resumes yelling and swearing at her loudly, says he paid for the seat. He's going to do whatever he wants to do anyway. Where are the sky marshals when you really need them? Okay, a few more minutes go by, and now the plane runs into some turbulence. And these aren't just minor air pockets. This is really severe stuff, ups and downs, sideways. The flight attendant has put duty above everything else, and she is coming down the aisle with a large tray in her hands. And on the tray, there are about 14 glasses, and they're all full with assorted beverages that she's trying to bring back to the passengers. Yes. <laughs> Just as she gets to that part of the cabin that's enveloped in this thick blue cloud of cigar smoke, the plane hits this huge turbulence. And it takes a terrific dip. And she ends up accidentally spilling the whole tray with about three quarts of liquid. And it goes all over this obnoxious passenger. It immediately extinguishes his cigar. It completely soaks him from head down to the buckle of his seatbelt. And it renders him totally speechless. His mouth is hanging open and his jaws going up and down, but there are no words coming out. <laughs> now, the rest of the passengers, they're just about ready to begin cheering at this point. But before anybody can react, the plane all of a sudden takes another huge dip and it lurches to the opposite side. And this angel <laughs> in the flight attendant's uniform, this perfect ten of femininity, she loses her balance and she falls backwards across the aisle and she lands squarely in the teenager's lap with her arms involuntarily thrown around his neck because she's trying to steady herself. For a long moment, she just looks into his innocent, shy, 17-year-old eyes and she doesn't let go and she smiles. She smiles the kind of smile that he will grow up and grow old thinking about every day of his life. <laughs> so now all these years later, in recalling that fateful incident from years before, the man says, don't tell me there's no God. I've had proof since I was 17. <laughs> Sometimes God does use humorous situations. Sometimes God uses humorous situations to bring a little bit of justice where it's deserved. And sometimes God uses people 
to make his presence known. And so at this point, ladies and gentlemen, I will present to you the disciples. Twelve people who, in my opinion, again offer incontrovertible proof that God indeed has to have a sense of humor. <laughs> These twelve are not exactly the illiterate or the glitterate of their time. At least four of them, maybe more, are just rugged, rough, <laughs> uneducated fishermen. One was a tax collector. Everybody hated him. One will forever have his name linked with the term, the doubter. One will end up a traitor. About whom afterwards, the other ones will say, you know what? We never did like him very much, and we thought he was skimming money off the checking account. Two of them, at one point in their ministry, will exhibit a brand of Christian tolerance that's a little bit confusing because they ask to be able to blow up a village that hadn't exactly welcomed them with open arms. <laughs> Several of them will be known to us in name only, and that's all. And finally, at the Last Supper, they all sit around, and what do they do? They're arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest in this brand new earthly kingdom they were convinced Jesus was bringing in. Now that said, I have to tell you that Peter has always been the one that I think has been closest to my heart. Because he always seems to have the knack of saying or doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And that's a trait that I can certainly relate to. <laughs> Here's just a few examples. You remember Simon Peter was the one who was walking on the water with Jesus. And then he sank like a stone when he suddenly stopped and began to think, OMG, what am I doing out here? <laughs> In that pinnacle moment up on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's Peter clearly not getting the momentousness of this whole occasion. And suddenly he blurts out, hey, this is a lot of fun up here. Why don't we build some tents or some lean-tos or some shelters? We'll just hang out up here. When Jesus, near the end of his ministry, explains that he must go to Jerusalem to die, it's Peter that says, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. And Jesus has to rebuke him very sternly. And we know that it's at the Last Supper that Peter is the one who promises that come what may, he is going to be loyal. No matter what the other ones do, Peter will never cut and run. And then he goes out and he denies he even knows anybody named Jesus, and he does it three times. Garden of Gethsemane, when the arrest occurs, it's Peter who somehow has smuggled a sword inside his robes, and in some kind of wild melee, he manages to cut the right ear off a guy named Malchus. Luke indicates that Jesus then had to heal the man's ear. So what I did when I picked this morning's after Easter scripture reading was that I picked it because it's one of those stunning appearances where Jesus shows up later on in a totally unexpected way, a totally unexpected place, totally unexpected time. And it's a perfect example of why we continue the Easter story for a prolonged season. 
But I also picked this particular scripture passage because Peter is in it. And I'm going to guess you probably didn't notice one small detail about him in the narrative. In verse 7, it says that Peter has stripped down in order to be able to work more efficiently while doing the hard labor all night long, fishing, throwing the nets over here, pulling them in, throwing the nets over here, pulling them in. But when he finally realizes that it's Jesus on the shore, what does he do? He puts clothes on and jumps into the lake. <laughs> so, so there we are again with good old Peter. I mean, who puts on clothes to jump into a lake? There are other examples, but the important thing here is to note we are not belittling this man at all. What we're doing is we're making him human. We're making him just like you and me. We share these spiritual vignettes to remind ourselves the disciples, every one of them, was just like us. And sometimes they were very frail people who failed at their tasks, who didn't understand Christ's teachings, who often did the wrong things and did them at the wrong times. And we have to smile at their lack of comprehension. We have to smile sometimes at their naivete. We have to smile at their bumbling efforts. And yet, and yet God uses these people, uses them mightily. Simon Peter became the very rock of faith on which the church of Jesus Christ was founded. The others ended up taking the gospel out to unknown places and they planted seeds of faith out there so that in a couple centuries those seeds would grow and they would overtake the whole Roman Empire and become a worldwide faith. The faith that you and I today we call our Christianity. And I find immense humor in the fact that these are the sorts of people that God always seems to use, isn't it? Common, ordinary, everyday, very flawed people like you and me. There is humor in the fact that the Savior of the whole world was born not in the royal halls of imperial palaces in Rome, but in a stable, in this tiny backwater village called Bethlehem. And there is great humor in the fact that more often than not, God utilizes not the pompous, not the powerful, but the plain and the imperfect. I wonder if you have ever thought about God and pictured God as smiling. Now, we don't want to be guilty of anthropomorphism here. That's one of those big words they teach us at seminary. Maybe not at McCormick. But. Oh. <laughs> anthropomorphism is when we take human characteristics and we try to attach them to things that aren't human, like God. But I'm going to ask you again anyway, because it's a great question. You ever think about God? And think about a smiling God. 
Okay, how about Jesus? Smiling Jesus. It's interesting that in the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, there have been now a whole new series of sketches and paintings and portraits that have been done. Artists giving their renditions about what Jesus might have looked like. And these newer artists that have done this kind of work, they've got him smiling. In some cases, even laughing. Now, for those of us that were raised on the rather antiseptic portrait done by Warner Salmon back in 1940, these new representations may have been a little bit jolting to us at first, but you know what? As we looked at them, upon further inspection, I think we found ourselves saying, yeah, I think maybe that could have been him. That, that smile, that laugh. And why not? Why not a smiling, laughing Jesus? Why not a smiling, laughing God? Why not a Jesus who, having blown the doors off his own tomb, shows up smiling and says, Hey, I told you so. <laughs> why not a God who, having conquered death, and who having given us the gift of eternal life, why not a creator God who looks past death, past the empty tomb of his own son, a God who smiles and says, I got you. Why not? I was reading this past week about a survey that was taken some years ago. It was done by a guy named David Briggs. And Briggs, at the time he took this survey, was the religion editor for the Associated Press News Services. Pretty highly regarded group. And what he did was to interview 300 little kids all across America. And what he did was to ask them to draw a picture of God. That was it. Now, the children were from all different spectrums of faith. There were Protestants and Catholics, and there were Jews. They represented different socioeconomic groups. Some came from big families, some from little families, some from single-parent families. Some lived in small towns, some lived in big cities. So there was a really pretty good cross-section here. So these little kids, when they were asked, they took their pencils their crayons and whatever in their little hands and they started to draw what they thought God looked like. And the pictures they drew almost always, without exception, were pictures that portrayed God as smiling. You see, kids get it. So I wondered... Can you and I get it too? Can you and I go back and reclaim that kind of childish confidence? A confidence that's based on our bedrock belief that God's gift to us of a sense of humor is indeed also based on how much God loves us. How much God loves us with an unconditional, eternal all-encompassing love. A love that as it is given, 
causes our Creator to smile. And a love that, as it is received, causes us to smile. Amen. Amen.